become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Welcome to the show today. We're excited uh, here at the Cancer Support Community to announce the newest release in our Frankly Speaking About Cancer Spotlight series. The topic is myelofibrosis. Uh, This uh, educational booklet, which is supported by Insight Pharmaceuticals, is designed to help you take more control over your situation and your treatment plan by giving you a better understanding of what this, this disease is, how it's diagnosed, what treatments are available, and what you need to know to manage the emotional impact of cancer. Be sure to check out our website, www.cancersupportcommunity.org, to order your free copy of the booklet on myelofibrosis. Uh, I'm sure many of you are wondering what exactly this type of cancer is. Um, uh, On today's show, we'll be learning a lot more uh, about the disease, including signs, symptoms, treatment options. Uh, Additionally, we'll be hearing from a survivor, an expert on emotional care, who will review what it's like to be diagnosed with a rare disease and how patients and their caregivers can cope. Uh, We are very fortunate to have three fantastic authorities with us today. I'm pleased to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Ross Levine, Robert Swanson, and Melissa Wright. They'll help us break down this rare and often unheard of disease and help you as a listener have a better understanding of myelofibrosis and what the diagnosis entails. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Uh, Ross Levine is a physician, a scientist with uh, expertise in the genetics of blood cancers. He is an associate member at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in the Human Oncology and Pathogenesis Program and Leukemia Services and is an associate professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. We also so appreciate his work on the development of this new spotlight piece on myelofibrosis. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Levine. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Melissa Wright. Melissa has been the program director at uh, Cancer Support Communities Affiliate Gildas Club Quad Cities in Davenport, Iowa, since it opened its doors in 1998. Melissa also contributed to our new spotlight booklet on myelofibrosis. Hi, Melissa. Hi there, Kim. And we are joined by Bob Swanson, who is presently uh, a director with the Milo Proliferative Neoplasms Education Foundation, also known as the MPN Education Foundation. I appreciate that acronym. Uh, Bob is a 12-year survivor of myelofibrosis, about which we'll hear more during the show. Glad you could join us, Bob. Glad to be here. So during the show today, um, we're delving deep into a cancer called myelofibrosis to give our listeners everything they need to know about the disease, from diagnosis to steps towards survivorship. Uh, Before we jump in with our guests, I want to give you a little more background. Uh, Myelofibrosis is a rare bone marrow cancer. It's part of the group of blood cancers known as myeloproliferative neoplasms. This essentially means that a person's bone marrow produces blood cells that develop and function abnormally. Myelofibrosis is a type of chronic leukemia that typically develops slowly 
with some individuals living symptom-free for years. And uh, finally, according to our partners at the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, myelofibrosis is diagnosed in about 1.5 out of every 100,000 people in the United States each year and affects both men and women, typically over the age of 50. Um, so that just gives us a little bit of background, but let's turn to our experts to really drill down on this. Dr. Levine, let me start with you. Um, I gave a, a very quick thumbnail uh, about the disease, but can you give our listeners a little bit more of an overview of this type of cancer? I know some of our listeners may not have heard of this, and so we really want to start with the basics. Well, I think what's important to recognize is that it's a disease in which there are a set of cells that are in the bone marrow and blood that are abnormal. And unlike many other cancers where it begins localized in one area per se and then ultimately can spread during the course of the disease because it's a blood-related disease that originates in the bone marrow, it actually can manifest uh, in multiple places in patients. And it usually presents with involvement in the bone marrow that often begins with just a larger number of cells, but very commonly progresses to a situation where the cells begin to cause what are called fibrosis or scar tissue in the bone marrow. And simultaneously, patients tend to experience an enlargement in their spleens, alterations in their blood counts, and then progressive constitutional symptoms, most commonly fatigue, loss of appetite, malaise. So it's a bit uh, more difficult than for many other cancers that we see to say this is how it presents. But patients can present from anything uh, with just abnormalities on a blood count. They go in for a routine checkup and they're found to have just an abnormal population of cells in their blood that they get followed up with tests and found to have myelofibrosis. The patient's coming in because they're uh, having what we call early satiety, meaning that they eat less and less because their stomach feels full. And that's because their spleen is getting so big that their stomach can't expand. So it can be quite variable in how patients actually come in and are diagnosed. And it's actually very different than some of the other leukemias we see in that regard. So, so Dr. Levine, so some of the um, signs and symptoms that you've talked about, you know, could be common things, could be attributed to so many uh, different things that a patient might have, might have or might be experiencing. Can, can you go through just a little bit more again what the sign, signs and symptoms are? And then, and then what would lead a, uh, lead a physician to look for uh, this type of cancer specifically? And how is the disease detected? What would be the test that would lead to this diagnosis? Sure. So there are definitely certain signs and symptoms that we generally uh, break down, I would say, into three different categories. One category, which is, I think, the least helpful, which are the ones that you're implying in the sense that they're very generic, uh, but are probably the most problematic, are what we would call the general or constitutional symptoms. Again, that's fatigue, weight loss, malaise. Again, not specific at all to myelofibrosis, but incredibly common in this disease. The second set of symptoms, which uh, is a bit more specific, is, again, the sense of fullness in their abdomen, particularly where their spleen is on the left side of their abdomen. That progresses over time so that patients get abdominal swelling and, again, the sense that they can no longer eat a full meal. And often this sort of less uh, specific symptoms uh, will suggest there's something wrong, but it's really alterations in the blood counts themselves that often are the trick to sort of move forward, meaning that patients will come in more commonly with low counts, but they can come in with high or low counts, high white cells or low white cells, high platelets or low platelets, and uh, occasionally anemia. And often it's this... 
it's some sort of constellation of like unclear protean symptoms and just some abnormalities on a blood count that really picks the interest of uh, the patient and their physician. And then what generally happens when they go to a hematologist is that if you see these symptoms with alterations in blood counts, you'll, it'll almost invariably lead to a bone marrow biopsy. And then uh, it's very characteristic to see features on the bone marrow when you look under the microscope that look like myelofibrosis. Okay. So I know our, our um, uh, frankly speaking, um, booklet talks about many of the issues that often come with a diagnosis of, of, uh, of myelofibrosis, and we, we were pleased to work with you and others um, to, to create this educational piece. But can you highlight uh, a, a few of those? Can you speak to um, uh, how someone, if, they, if and when they are diagnosed, what they'll, they'll be dealing with, how they might uh, formulate a plan of care, who are the key people um, on the care team that they need to, to pull into this conversation? Sure, and I think it's a really important aspect because, as you said, this is not the most common blood-related uh, cancer. And so I think one of the critical aspects that patients and their family members need to understand is that it's really critical, I think, that they relatively rapidly identify someone who actually has experience and familiarity with this disease because unlike many other cancers where most hematologists and oncologists see them quite frequently, for, for physicians that aren't uh, seeing these patients routinely in practice, it can be uh, potentially the only patient they see even that year with this disease. And so what we generally recommend is that patients are evaluated relatively quickly by their local hematologist or hematologist-oncologist, including a bone marrow exam. And then I strongly recommend that every patient, once there's a suspicion or a diagnosis of myelofibrosis, that they go see an expert. And, you know, there are patient uh, physicians uh, in a number of large centers all over the country, fortunately, that see a lot of these patients. And I think it's really important, whether even if it means uh, traveling a number of hours away and there are physicians that are real experts quite throughout the U.S., it's critical because especially if their local doctor doesn't have a lot of routine experience, it's critical to get some insight at the beginning of the disease and then, you know, periodically to check in with the expert to make sure that the treatment course makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... Um so we're, I know we're going to drill down uh, on treatment. We've got a, just a, a couple minutes here, Dr. Levine, um, until the break. But just so, just to clarify, once the diagnosis is made, that the patient should be under the care of a, of a hematologist. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's critical for them to have uh, to seek the opinion of someone who has extensive experience with this disease. And so often that means not just a hematologist, but then going to see a hematologist with a particular extensive background in myelofibrosis. And um, uh, and so we're we're saying that that if a person has the diagnosis, or if they're seeing these symptoms, that they should perhaps be going to get a second opinion, um, maybe at a large uh, large academic center. They should be asking some key questions about the physician's experience in in treating myelofibrosis. I think the best question to ask is relatively simple. It's just ask the physician how many patients with myelofibrosis are in your practice and how many new patients do you see a year. And I think if that if the if the answer is uh, not many, then I think uh, most physicians and patients would agree that it makes sense to go see an expert just to get their input. Not that one has to change your care, to, uh, and it can be quite inconvenient, especially if the person uh, is lo located in a different city than the expert. 
But I think, again, with these rarer cancers, it's really important to make sure that uh, an expert is being sought, both to make sure that the treatment course in the beginning is straightforward, and also as new therapies come and new clinical trials, it's important to have a contact in the world to make sure that your new treatments become available if you need them. And could it be, um, uh, could it be that you go for the second opinion, the, the doctor giving the second opinion is outlining a treatment protocol that could well be administered in your home hospital or your hometown? Absolutely, and I think that's most commonly what happens, particularly when the uh, second opinion is in a geographically separate area. Mm-hmm. I think we all work together as, as a team of experts. I think that physicians uh, who see myelofibrosis patients uh, really have very special and niche practices, and they're very uh, used to working with uh, the greater oncology community to make sure that patients with myelofibrosis, regardless of where they live, for getting the right care. And I don't think it's a very difficult uh, conversation to have. Great. Excellent. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking today about myelofibrosis. We're going to take just a quick break here. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and Azi. 
I'm Kim Thibodeau, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ross Levine from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Melissa Wright from our Cancer Support Community Affiliate Gildas Club Quad Cities, and Bob Swanson with the MPN Education Foundation. We're talking today about a uh, rare bone marrow cancer called myelofibrosis that affects 1.5 out of every 10,000 people in the U.S. We're breaking down this relatively unknown uh, cancer, and we just learned about the symptoms and issues that often come uh, with a diagnosis. I want to pull Bob Swanson uh, into the conversation. Bob is a survivor of this disease uh, for over 12 years. I want to hear his story, and I want to hear a little bit about uh, uh, the MPN Education uh, Foundation. So, Bob, can you tell us about your experience with myelofibrosis? When were you diagnosed? What symptoms um, did you experience that, that caused you to seek care? Well, my original diagnosis was uh, actually polycythemia vera in 1988, and I actually progressed uh, between 1988 and 2000 to finally uh, get a diagnosis of uh, uh, myelofibrosis. And uh, what developed during that period of time, I wasn't being treated with anything other than a phlebotomy-only course of treatment. And uh, during that time, I developed... uh, uh, very uh, mild symptoms at first, uh, tender joints, uh, stomach upset, uh, frequent stomach upset, uh, sore muscles, stiffness, and it was all insidious. And then uh, as the time went on, uh, I was developing more and more fatigue, and then finally the major symptoms started uh, uh, appearing, and once they appeared, they never went away, and that was uh, the deep bone pain and, uh, and night sweats and uh, ex- excessive pain. Uh, there's no real way to describe it because there really isn't a very good control unless someone is willing to go on the narcotic medications. The actual diagnosis itself was in 2000 and uh, it was a a BMB. I was, uh, at the time, I was still prolific, but I was anemic and uh, uh, they did a a bone marrow biopsy, uh, uh, an MRI, also a nuclear bone scan because I was a little bit abnormal in the sense that neither the liver or the spleen had enlarged and they were were trying to figure out exactly what the problem was. And uh, uh, once they they did that plus the blood test which confirmed that I had uh, blasts and I also had the uh, small red cells, uh, abnormal red cells, uh, they determined that I was uh, 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 suffering from uh, myelofibrosis or that I converted to myelofibrosis. Dr. Levine, can you tell us what PV is that, that Bob mentioned and and about this the, the concept of, of converting or progressing to myelofibrosis? Sure, so PV is a disease we call polycythemia vera, which is a disease that presents with too many red blood cells and very often, in fact, it's without many symptoms at all, just again on a routine blood count, kind of high red blood cells. and. It is a disease, although it can be managed uh, often initially quite easily, does often progress to a more advanced disease and can ultimately progress to myelofibrosis that looks for all intensive purposes just like if patients had myelofibrosis from the outset without having uh, PV before it. So I think uh, what you just heard about is unfortunately a very typical uh, story for how patients' uh, disease progresses to myelofibrosis. Okay. So, Bob, what what was it like for you um, when you were told that your disease had progressed from PV to uh, to, to, to myelofibrosis? What, what did that news feel like to you? Well, I'm a bit of an abnormal case because I'm a little bit of a computer geek, and I, I had been accessing, uh, before the World Wide Web even came about, I uh, was able to access medical libraries all over the world using the Internet. And, and so I had done a lot of studying for myself, and I knew that it was a possibility. 
when the diagnosis happened, I was extremely disappointed, and uh, um, it was it was even even though I already had a serious disease that was being controlled, it was it was kind of shattering because the prognosis for people with um, mild fibrosis is normally not very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, so so M- M- Melissa, obviously, you know, some very difficult uh, news to hear for Bob of that progression from PV to myelofibrosis. Um, uh, you know, what w- what's the typical reaction if there is one for someone uh, who goes through that kind of uh, that kind of shift to a point where you know Bob had a condition that he thought was being managed, and then re- and then uh, that progressing to this more rare, uh, uh, you know, rare disease. What what do we see from patients who are who are dealing with uh, with such a difficult diagnosis? Well, I think that's obviously pretty normal. Um, I think hearing the words, you have cancer, are devastating to anyone, you know, and especially when there's a progression of an illness um, to a cancer, how, you know, a person can experience shock and fear and anxiety around that, um, especially when they're not experiencing symptoms like you might see in, in a typical cancer um, where you know something's wrong. So I think that that's um, the, the part of the shock where when you hear that, you think, um, you know, they might not have been as prepared as Bob was in terms of knowing that this could happen. And so just hearing that um, and just being caught off guard um, and then, you know, just being anxious around uh, the unknowns, you know, what is this illness? What does this mean for me? Um, how will it be treated? And what's my prognosis? Are all just sort of normal things I think people with any type of cancer or even a rare cancer will experience. Yeah, yeah. So, so Bob, when you were, were diagnosed, what you're obviously an educated, uh, an educated and active, uh, an active patient. So, when you were diagnosed and when you, uh, when they detected this progression, what was your, what was your plan of action? How did you go about putting together a, a plan of care? Did you get a second opinion? How, you know, how did all of that play out for you? Uh, I didn't get a second opinion because my hematologist by that time had been working with me or uh, for the 12 years, and I and uh, she was an excellent. Uh, I just felt that we made an, an excellent team, and I think that that was really important. The other thing that I had is uh, is I had joined a, a group called the MPD Net, or now called the MPN Net, and it's uh, it's a list group of uh, 2,800 uh, subscribers. And uh, people with like diseases, so we, we could basically talk about uh, w- what was happening and learn and listen from other people's symptoms. And it got rid of the biggest problem, and that is that feeling of aloneness. Uh, being able to share with people that had a like disease was really helpful in terming and in, in uh, help me helping me maintain my own confidence. And then uh, having the ability to understand that I needed to take care of myself first, and then I needed to be able to share with my family. And if I had cancer, they had cancer, so we had to be able to share on an equal basis. Everybody had an equal footing on it, and that really helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Melissa, I think that, that Bob's pointed out some things that I think are so important in dealing uh, for an individual and a family dealing with a cancer diagnosis. Number one, he talked about plugging in uh, to this community and um, getting connected with others who were having a similar experience. Let's talk about that for a minute, and let's also talk about the fact that he talked about this good relationship that he had with his doctor. Talk about the importance of that. Well, um, I think as uh, as both the other uh, panelists have mentioned, the importance of having confidence, you know, in your healthcare team and um, feeling like you're in the right hands and and seeking, you know, second or third opinions if you need to get to that point. 
Um, but I know one of the things uh, in support groups here at Gilda's Club people most often talk about is, you know, that comfort level of, of trusting your healthcare professionals and, and feeling like they know what they're doing, and that gives you confidence and, and um, helps you to make, you know, some decisions along the lines of what you need to do. So, um, and as Bob mentioned, I like the, the fact that he got involved with a network of people um, and he mentioned feeling not so alone, and that's one of the things, you know, we get, um, all, we hear all the time at Gilda's Club is just that sense of, of knowing that other people know what you're going through and, and not feeling so alone in that and uh, getting the information you need to help you make some decisions along those lines. So, Bob, you talked about your, your communication with your family. Tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us about your family. Tell us about how you uh, kind of shared this news with them and really kind of got them engaged in the process. Well, it was really difficult because uh, it, uh, both my, my wife and my kids were uh, fairly young at the time when I got my first diagnosis, so there was always this problem, and the kids especially felt the uh, a fear of abandonment, I guess you could call it, and I had mm -hmm. to talk with them all the time about it, especially at bedtime, and uh, and uh, basically reassure them and tell them I didn't I didn't know what the answer was, and I and I didn't know if uh, uh, if I was going to be able to survive this thing, but uh, they had to know that I was going to continue to fight all the way, and that that seemed to be reassurance enough for them. Just my telling them that all the time, if I get dragged out of this, it's going to be feet first, and and that that was good enough for them, but they had to hear it all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the other thing was that just being willing willing to share with them when they, whenever they had the problem because it came up at the oddest times when they would ask me these kind of questions. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, go ahead, Bob, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. The other thing I was going to talk about is my, is my own plan was is that I had been reading about it and there wasn't anything else available for uh, uh, MF at the time. And so I asked my doctor, uh, actually I had to lobby her for uh, to put me on interferon. And uh, and, and it, it actually complicated the problem in the sense that it was uh, the side effects of interferon are, are couldn't be uh, fairly uh, severe at times, and yeah. I had to learn to take care of myself and 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 uh, keep telling the family, listen, this is the this is the drug, this isn't the disease. So I had to keep them separate so that they weren't getting scared when they would see me not looking very well, and I had to stay positive about the drug itself because I knew that it was the only thing that could help me at the time. There was nothing else nothing else available. How how old were your kids at the time, Bob? Uh, well, when I was first diagnosed, they were five and six. Uh, but by, by this time, they were they were they were teenagers. But it was still a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, how long were you on the interferon? I uh, started the interferon in, in 2000, and I'm one of the lucky ones. It it not only worked, it worked better than it does for most people. And I have been on it for the last uh, 12 and a half years, and uh, I don't require any other treatment right now. It is actually doing the job, although. In the last couple of years here, I've experienced a little bit of splenomegaly or enlargement of the spleen and liver, which is causing me some problems, but I'm 69, so <laughs> a guy has to expect some different problems. Uh, who knows what the causes are? Kim, mm -hmm. can I jump in for just yeah, a minute? Yeah, please, Melissa. Yep, yep. Well, I just wanted to point out um, how, you know, Bob has mentioned it, it affects him, but as well as his family, you know, and, and how cancer does affect the entire family. And so I think it's so important that they all find a way to get support, you know, in dealing with that because, you know, the cancer patient, the person with the diagnosis is focusing on their care, you know, and, and themselves. And, um, you know, a lot of times family members are just kind of out there trying to figure this all out. Not 
kind of feeling um, a sense of a, a loss of control, you know, because they really have no part in that. I mean, they're there to support the person with the diagnosis. So I think it's, um, you know, fortunately there are a lot more services today yep. and, you know, Gilded yep. Club and the cancer support community being one of them that provides yep. support for family members. I think I think it's a great point and, and uh, uh, yes, it's certainly important to let folks know we've got 57 centers around the country where we provide support not only for the patient but for the family, for, for young children, for grown children um, and uh, I think it's important to point that out. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Genentech and Morphotech. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ross Levine from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Melissa Wright from Cancer Support Community's affiliate Gilded Club Quad Cities, and Bob Swanson with the NPN Education Foundation. We just heard from Bob who told us a little bit about his story with myelofibrosis. Um, I, I want to pull uh, Melissa back into the conversation a little bit more. We talked before the break, uh, Melissa, about the importance of not just providing support for the, uh, for the patient but for 
for the family uh, uh, as well. And so um, I, I, let, let's get back into that a little bit. Uh, Melissa, can you offer some insight um, into what patients and families say it's like to live with, uh, with a rare cancer and, and some of the suggestions that you might have when they are facing this? And, and also, you know, obviously Bob's been dealing with this for many, many years when they're dealing with this kind of situation over a long period of time, some of the resources that are out there and how folks can get support. Well, I think when if when folks first call Gilda's Club, they're looking to speak to someone else who's been there, you know, someone who has the same type of cancer or is the same age or gender as them. And so when they call with a with a rare disease um, such as myelofibrosis, you know, that makes it a little bit more difficult for us to be able to offer up, you know, someone who's been in uh, had that exact same thing. But what I tell them uh, is that being a part of Gilda's Club, being a part of a cancer support community, just allows them access to others who um, who knows what it's like to be there whether they have the same illness as them or not um, and I think that just being a part of a support group in the, in a community that um, where they can share their experiences they can hear from others how um, you know it's others are experiencing the same thing as them you know they're not alone as Bob mentioned that feeling of aloneness that others understand what they're going through um, and that the emotions that they're experiencing are normal you know and uh, even two people with the exact same uh, diagnosis are going to experience that differently but being able to just be around others um, hear positive inspirational stories of hope you know gives them um, reasons to keep going and to um, deal with this chronic illness such as myelofibrosis, you know, something that they're going to be dealing with for a long time. Yeah. I know, um, Melissa, when we look at, uh, you know, sort of the common experiences of people with all cancers, we talk about this idea that that folks with cancer, regardless of the type of cancer, are going to experience a, 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 a loss of hope, a sense of of, of uncertainty, a loss of control, uh, you know, over the illness. And I'm always amazed that our, you know, when folks with all different types of cancer connect with one another, how they do find hope, how they find a, the tools, you know, to take control, um, and, you know, and to be a part of that. But we do, you know, we do know, obviously, we see cancers that are out there where there's a huge public movement. We see breast cancer and the pink ribbon. Um, um, you know, how, how does being, uh, being diagnosed with a more rare um, disease uh, and, and lack of, of, of public awareness, how does that affect one's ability to kind of face the disease and, and, and cope? Can that feel a little bit more isolating at times? I think that it can because, you know, they come in and they say things like, well, it's all about breast cancer, you know, and so they're feeling like there's no attention um, on what they're dealing with. But, you know, at Gilda's Club, at least from my experience, um, it really doesn't matter what you know, label what type of cancer you put on it. They've all heard those words. They've all experienced the emotions. Um, they all have family members who mean well, who don't always have the right things to say. Um, so they they can identify with one another um, and get behind, you know, whatever type of cancer it is. They, they know that um, others know what they're going through. So I think because it's rare, um, you know, a person may be out there feeling like they're alone, but once they come to a Gilded Club or a cancer support community, they forget all about that. Can I, yeah. Can I just add something? I think one critical thing is that, like many other rare cancers, there's many different avenues, uh, both 
generally for patients going through similar issues with different diagnoses. But even for these rare cancers, I think what's mm-hmm. been really beneficial between the Internet and all the other um, uh, communication uh, media, media that you can use, I think there's been a, a really uh, a beneficial explosion of opportunities. And Bob can comment, but, you know, I think one of the wonderful things has been in this small community has been that a lot of the patients that he's been involved in this have organized uh, different uh, fora, both there's a biannual symposia where about four or 500 patients probably get together and um, get to hear talks from 20 or 30 experts, and we all break out in small groups and we talk amongst uh, both uh, patients and doctors together, as well as there are now uh, meetings all over the country with patient groups and foundations. And so I think there are many opportunities that the key thing is that patients need to avail themselves both of the issues that they think are germane to the day-to-day struggles they're dealing with and also mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to try and find patients going through exactly what they're going through or uh, to make sure that they, they know all the resources that are out there specific for their disease. Mm-hmm. Bob, can you tell us a little bit more about the Education Network and how uh, the foundation, where folks can find it, how they can get plugged into some of these activities? Oh, I sure will. I just wanted to add one thing to what Melissa was talking about, because yes. with a rare disease, it's even more important, and that is that when people look at you and they say, you don't look like you're sick, and mm. uh, it, it's really difficult sometimes, especially when a person is really suffering or they're, they, you know, a new diagnosis or a new problem, it really can be shattering. And, and so the people around need to develop a, a, a finer-tuned sense of empathy sometimes. It may, really makes a difference for the patient. As far as the uh, Education Foundation is concerned, it was founded by a a wonderful lady by the name of uh, Joyce Niblack, uh, who at the same time uh, founded uh, the uh, uh, MPN list, uh, uh, support list uh, that we have uh, for uh, people with um, uh, all all of the uh, mild proliferative disorders. And uh, we have a conference uh, at the, uh, right now it's being held at uh, um, the Mayo Clinic in uh, Phoenix, uh, Arizona, every two years, and the next one comes up at the uh, end of February next year. And uh, this is an excellent forum, and uh, like Dr. Levine said, it, uh, these, uh, these are happening all over the country now, and this is a, just, a, uh, it's a, just a, a real ray of hope for people who are newly diagnosed, and they finally see that all these new drugs are coming out now and all these new therapies that uh, are really doing a lot, not only to prolong life, but they're also relieving some of the uh, excruciatingly painful symptoms that we have, uh, uh, some of the people that suffer from the more severe symptoms. The other thing we have is a website, the mpninfo.org, and uh, there we have uh, facts and uh, frequently asked questions. We have outlines of all the major diseases, and we also have videos there that are posted by uh, experts on MPNs, and uh, we welcome any postings uh, by the doctors uh, because they all help to improve the education of the patient. And the other thing we have is our mailing list, and that's uh, www.acor.org slash MPN. And uh, it's uh, 2,800 members, and uh, the three list owners, Angie, uh, Ian Sweet, and myself, uh, what we do is we try and uh, uh, lead people to, to uh, seek the experts. We have the, uh, the addresses of most of the experts uh, throughout the United States. We also have a patient-recommended doctor's list so that uh, people in a, in a small community can sometimes find a doctor. And uh, they, they can feel alone because one of the things that hasn't been talked about is the symptoms can vary so much from patient to patient mm. that a doctor that's not an expert on it won't see 
uh, a patient with a certain set of symptoms. So that's why it's really important to get the, uh, the, in, the input of that expert in your, in, in your treatment. Terrific. I think that's great information, and I'll, I'll at the end of the show, go over those uh, those websites again. Um, Dr. Levine and Melissa, before we get to our break here, uh, you were both involved in, in uh, the development and writing and review of our Frankly Speaking About Cancer Spotlight booklet about uh, myelofibrosis. Um, uh, Dr. Levine, would you just give a, a quick overview of what, what folks can can find in the book just in terms of, uh, you know, of looking at these symptoms and, 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 and uh, treatment and side effect management, things like that? Well, I think it really is a fantastic, what I would call a practical guide to dealing with the issues that patients, I think, uh, confront uh, on a daily basis with this disease. And I think some of the issues we've talked quite a lot about already, which are just dealing with, with, with how the disease makes you feel and dealing with the day-to-day demands of having a disease like this, which can cause substantial uh, problems to patients over time. And then I think equally importantly, and where I think really uh, it's really important is it's a lot of attention to how the different treatments that are available uh, can benefit you, but also what to expect when you start them. Because I think uh, it's one thing to go into a doctor's room for a few minutes and to have a detailed discussion about what to expect with a new treatment. But given that it's very hard to remember every aspect or even cover every aspect in a, in a, in a brief uh, patient-doctor interaction, it's really helpful to have a, uh, a document that you can refer to and use uh, and ground yourself into what, what, you're, what you're going through. And then we've just got uh, just a, a, a quick time until the break here, Melissa, what folks can find in terms of really coping with a cancer diagnosis in the booklet. Yes, I'm uh, very pleased that the the sections that are devoted to the emotional aspects of living uh, with a long-term and chronic illness. So I think folks will find it very beneficial, give them some things to think about in terms of um, their emotional reactions and where they can go for help in that. Terrific. Uh, and for those who are interested, you can order uh, the booklet for free from our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and we'd be happy to send that out. Or you can call us at 888-793-9355, and we can get that out into the mail uh, to you right away. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about myelofibrosis. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, 
how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part today by Celgene and Azi. I'm Kim Tebaldo. I'm joined today by Dr. Ross Levine from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Melissa Wright from our Cancer Support Community Affiliate, Gilda's Club, Quad Cities, and Bob Swanson from the NPN Education Foundation, which you can uh, find at npninfo.org. Is that right, Bob? Okay. Uh, in our final segment, I want to wrap up the show by discussing treatment options and next steps for those who uh, have been diagnosed. Dr. Levine, what are the treatment options for someone uh, who's been uh, diagnosed? I know uh, uh, Bob talked a little bit about being on interferon for many, many years. Um, is there a, a typical protocol? Are we seeing uh, new treatments, advances in the treatment of this disease? Well, I think the, the critical thing to always uh, keep in mind when you you're a patient with myofibrosis or their doctor is trying to ask yourself what the goal of treatments are because there's a very wide range of different treatment options and it really depends on the stage of the disease and also what the issues that the patient is confronted with. I think given that patients can actually live for a long time with myofibrosis, that one aspect that's maybe different than uh, other cancers, for example, acute leukemia, which is life-threatening from the outset, is that we have to balance the expected benefits with the risks of long-term therapy because patients can remain on treatment for a long time. So the the two critical questions that I think patients and doctors ask themselves are, one, is what are the issues that actually are, are, are in front of the patient at that moment? Is it symptoms? Is it the spleen? Is it the fact that the counts are going down or are too high? And the second is getting a sense for the patient's risk for having their disease progress more rapidly into a more serious or uh, life-threatening phase. And that can be done by looking at things like blood counts and bone marrow tests and chromosomal tests. And uh, speaking to that latter aspect, if a patient has very aggressive or high-risk disease, which is a small number of patients, then we worry uh, enough to think about very aggressive treatments, even bone marrow transplant. And that really is reserved for patients with very aggressive disease, particularly who are very young, who we believe uh, need an aggressive uh, approach with the intent to cure, although one that comes with lots of side effects and toxicity. 
For the rest of patients who have less aggressive disease or maybe can't tolerate a, a transplant, even if they have aggressive disease, we then ask ourselves what we're trying to, to deal with at the, at the time. And for patients who have uh, the most common type of disease, so bad symptoms, big spleens, I think the development of inhibitors of JAK2, which is the gene that we know is important in these diseases, has really changed uh, the landscape because now instead of using drugs which we can't, couldn't reliably know whether they'd improve symptoms or spleen weight, we now have a drug that we know we can give to patients uh, and actually improve symptoms and reduce spleen size. So for the subset of patients where that's their primary problem, we now have a medical therapy that can be quite effective. For the remainder of patients who have low counts or don't tolerate those drugs, it's a little more complicated and it depends on, on the patient and, and the situation. Often we do clinical trials in the circumstance, but there are definitely a large number of options. This is why at the beginning of the program, I really recommend that patients at the outset and then anytime a big decision is made, that they make sure that they have someone who knows a lot about the disease involved in these decisions because the decisions aren't always so straightforward and you need to mm -hmm. make sure you have all the facts in hand. So, Melissa, I mean, it sounds like it can be a complicated um, pathway, obviously, and, and a range of a range of treatment options, may, maybe not a clear path, maybe some choices that a patient needs to make based on his or her um, priorities. What are the, some of the things that a patient should consider when, uh, when weighing their treatment options and looking at a complex disease like myelofibrosis? Well, I think um, finding out about resources, you know, just the things that um, Bob has mentioned today, um, you know, the wealth of information that's available on the inter Internet is a good place to start. Um, but I would also like to mention a, a service that we offer at uh, the Cancer Support Community and here locally at Gilda's Club is the Open Options Program um, where uh, a, a person can sit down um, with a, a trained specialist and, um, and complete a session. Um, it's a decision, decision support counseling session, and we help them come up with questions um, prior to a physician appointment um, that they have about their treatment options. And I think this is helpful because it kind of helps them organize their thoughts around um, the questions that they have and, and their treatment options. Um, but the feedback that we're getting from people that are completing the open to option session is, you know, it just helps them to kind of prioritize their questions. Um, it helps them to feel less anxious because they're able to just kind of sit down with someone and talk it through. Um, we don't come up with questions for them, um, but essentially at the end of the session, there's a, a question list that's generated. Um, we can type that up and send it with them or even fax it to their physician's office ahead of time so that the doctor knows, you know, what the questions are from the patient. So um, that would be a good resource, I think, for anybody looking to make some uh, treatment decisions related to, to this illness. Great. And I know you guys are offering that in, in, uh, in Quad Cities. I know we're offering that at a number of our affiliates around the country, but we're also offering that as a free service by phone um, if folks want to call to set up an open to options treatment counseling session. They can call our helpline at 888-793-9355 and they can set up a free uh, one-hour appointment with one of our trained counselors to get that open to options treatment decision counseling by phone as well. So we want to make sure folks are aware of that new um, free service that we're providing at the cancer support community. Um, Bob, we're getting to the end of our show. Um, for, for those who might be just joining us or tuning in late, can you just uh, say a word or two about the MPN Education Foundation and, um, and the ACOR listserv and how folks can get plugged in to those resources and connect with others who've been through this same diagnosis? 
I'd be happy to. Uh, the MPN Education Foundation is holding another conference uh, at the end of February next year. Uh, the information is on the website at mpninfo.org, and uh, uh, you can also uh, sign up uh, to participate in, in the conference there. We have an expanded uh, venue this year, so we're, we're, we can accommodate uh, over 400 people, and uh, we're hoping to have uh, a large uh, input from, uh, from patients. They all seem to get a lot out of it. We'll have experts, uh, expert doctors from all over the world, and normally Dr. Levine is part of the uh, is part of the group. I'd also like to mention that uh, Dr. Levine needs a, a, an, an extra vote of thanks for being one of the uh, doctors responsible for the Jack 2 gene because uh, it is the primary gene uh, for which. Uh, uh, this whole new generation of drugs has been evolved, which has uh, significantly uh, improved the life of uh, anybody with a myeloproliferative disorder. The other thing I'd like to say is, is that uh, uh, one of the problems that we have is the cost of the drugs, and mm -hmm. uh, I would sure like to see uh, programs or something where patients that do need these uh, new types of therapy, the expensive drugs, where they can uh, get the approvals from the uh, c companies a little bit more easily. And also, uh, if they can't afford the drugs, uh, that there could be some programs in place where this kind of, uh, uh, where the access would be possible for them. Great. I think those are important sort of advocacy issues that we all need to address as a cancer community, Bob, for sure. Bob, where is that conference taking place in February? In Phoenix, uh, Arizona, at the uh, I don't know the name of the new auditorium, but it's associated with the uh, with the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. Terrific, terrific, and folks can find out more about that at mpninfo.org. And uh, uh, again, the the listserv that Bob mentioned is at acor.acor.org/mpn. Is that correct, Bob? That's correct, and that's where okay. you would be able to join the list, uh, um, the mailing list, where you can share information and get in, get information on the diseases. Terrific, terrific. Well, this has been an incredibly um, enlightening conversation, and uh, I just want to thank our three wonderful guests for being here today to talk with us about this important topic. Thank you to Dr. Ross Levine from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Melissa Wright from our Cancer Support Community Affiliate, Gildas Club Quad Cities, and Bob Swanson from the MPN Education Foundation. I appreciate all of you sharing your wisdom and expertise uh, with our listeners about this important Important topic. Um, I also would like to thank uh, uh, Insight Pharmaceuticals for their uh, generous support of our, frankly, speaking about cancer myelofibrosis issue. Uh, our new edition, again, is available free of charge on our website at cancersupportcommunity.org or by calling 888-793-9355. At the Cancer Support Community, we want you to know that you do not have to face this disease alone. Uh, there is a wonderful community and network uh, across the country. We have 57 affiliates, 100 satellites, an online community, a helpline. We hope you will reach out to find support and get connected at cancersupportcommunity.org. Thank you for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, Live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <laughs>